0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be taking a break this morning from our study of the Gospel of John. If you're new to our church, typically we work through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse or chapter by chapter, depending, uh, it's called expositional preaching, that's typically what we do. But we're in a a little bit of a mini-series starting this morning on uh, what I've uh, entitled Doctrine Matters. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be doing an introduction and talking about what we'll call matters of first importance. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible with you. We have some that are kind of placed throughout the row in front of you there and the pockets there. You can grab one of those Bibles and turn to page 903, page 903 in that pew Bible. If you don't own your own Bible, you can feel free to take that Bible home as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have God's word uh, in your hands and in your possession, we want that uh, for you, so you can you can take that Bible. Doctrine matters. So again, doing things a bit differently as we start this mini series this morning. So I'm going to do our scripture reading before our introduction this morning. So if you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read a lot and as you follow along? First Corinthians chapter 15. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to just read verses one through five this morning. Well. I don't care what you think, Siri. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 15, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul writes these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas then to the Twelve. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's Word in the New Testament. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud. Would you join me now in prayer? Lord, I pray that as we... um, Open your word together this morning that our hearts would be intent on understanding what we study together this morning. And that, Lord, you would focus us upon you and your truth and uh, the important matter of which we speak this morning and study together this morning. And, Lord, that we would give all the honor and the glory and the praise to you that your spirit who has inspired these words in the original autographs would now also illuminate our mind to an understanding and to an application. We praise you and thank you for this and we pray that I pray Lord that you would get me out of the way in Jesus name. Amen. So again we're going to take a short break about three weeks from the gospel of John and start a short series today on What matters when it comes to doctrine? What matters concerning what we believe or what we confess as a church? I'm going to introduce this topic this morning and then address what Paul calls matters of first importance. Now, just briefly, and I think this this will come out as we are going through this this morning and then throughout the series, when we talk about theology or we talk about doctrine... Uh, What do we mean? So theology, if we break that word down into its uh, parts, means God and word, a word about God or studying God. So um, we're going to address this morning um, not only the importance of doctrine, that doctrine matters, but talk about doctrine in regard to matters of first importance, second importance, and so on. This idea of first importance sets up a paradigm for us to think about the issue of doctrine. On the back of your worship folder, you'll see this idea listed as written by Gavin Ortland. Uh, Or if you're tuning in to the live stream, this should have been emailed to you. And I I would highly recommend you pick up Gavin's book on this topic, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. It's a, a good book about this matter. But this is what he Says about first, second, third, etc. order of doctrines. So you have this written for you. First rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. First rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. And so we're going to uh, see this morning uh, that. That's the one we're going to focus in on. First rank doctrines. Second rank doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church such that they are. Frequently cause, or they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of local church, denomination, and/or ministry. So that's what we're going to look at together next week, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. Third rank doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. And then fourth rank doctrines are unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. Again, we're going to unpack these over the next few weeks. Uh, Next week, looking at second rank, and then in our third week, likely we'll cover both third and fourth rank doctrines. The different approaches to these ranks of doctrine by various groups helps us understand what we are getting at when we want to understand how we should approach these issues. So um, there are different ways that people have approached this. There are what are called the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists. Now, I want to be careful because there, there was a need in the beginning of the 20th century for there to be a refocusing on the fundamentals of the faith. So fundamentalism, though, the ism is important there, um, of today, fundamentalists of today, would say that all of these matters, it doesn't matter, first, second, third, rank doctrine All of them are of the same importance. Therefore, there is no ranking. We separate over all areas of disagreement. So, for instance, um, if you were to say that uh, we disagree on the area of baptism, which is a second area of doctrine, uh, something around which churches are formed, um, uh, 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 fundamentalists would say we should have nothing to do at all with those who don't agree with us in in the matter of baptism. Um, in regard to for perhaps our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. We can't have anything at all whatsoever to do with them. And over time, what fundamentalism does is it creates personality cults. Uh, kind of like what Paul addresses in First Corinthians, the first chapter. You know, I am of this person or I am of that person. I, I am of this teaching or of that teaching. And, it, and it, it goes down to the level of things that are unimportant for the gospel, so, um, you know, for instance, I grew up in independent uh, fundamentalism. You know, our group was very much against mixed bathing. And um, some of you from those days know what I'm talking about. Others of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, guys and girls couldn't swim together. That was considered a matter of something that you would separate over. Yet other fundamentalist groups had no problem with that. So, how do you stay together in that? You don't, you separate. So you have all these factions of fundamentalists. And and you see this um, uh, throughout uh, the early history of Christianity in America. So all things are of the same importance across the board. You can have no ranking of doctrines. Uh, The the least important thing is put on the most important level. Then you have liberalism. Uh, What the true fundamentalists of the early 20th century were fighting against was, was this idea of liberalism. Liberalism, in essence, is saying all these areas are up for grabs. As long as there is love, everything will be fine. Liberalism says there is no first-order doctrine, there is no order of doctrines, and therefore nothing that we need to worry about. As long as we have love, by the way, what does that mean? How do we define that? Everything will be fine. So it throws out the important matters, things we're going to be talking about this morning, like... Is Jesus God? What does it matter in liberalism? As long as there's love. Is there only one way to be reconciled to God through Christ? Don't deal with doctrine. We just need love. It's the opposite of the fundamentalists. Then there's a group where they say doctrine is unnecessary. This may sound a bit like liberalism, but it is, it's not. Because they're um, unintentionally um, not thinking through what they're saying. They are un- unintentionally inconsistent. Inconsistent. These are the folks that say something like this. My only creed is Christ. Oh, that sounds so uh, you know sophisticated. My only creed is Christ. The problem, of course, is when you say that, which Christ? I mean, there are many versions of Jesus out there. Is it the fundamentalist Jesus? Is it the liberal Jesus? My only creed is Christ. Well, you've just stated a creed, and it's not deep enough. Because you have to start... Getting into issues of who is Christ? Is he God or is he not? And so, even just stating my only creed is Christ betrays your idea because we must have definitions. This is why we must have creeds or confessions or statements of faith. And then there is historic, historical Christianity. Christianity. Historical Christianity has seen where there is a need to divide or unite on various levels based upon what Ortland and others highlight concerning the ranking of doctrines. There are matters of first importance. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians 15. There are matters of first importance upon which we must stand. Then there are matters of second ranking upon which we sort of organize our church around these things. Then there are matters of third and fourth ranking that don't uh, have a bearing upon much of anything, uh, perhaps personal preferences or other matters like that. Well, why study this? Why study this? Because it's important to know why we believe what we believe and because there is a need to highlight that which is really important and that which is not something to separate over within the local church and what is not something to separate over in the broader context of the church or the church universal. For instance, as I mentioned earlier, we are not Presbyterian. So we organize a certain way around the doctrine of baptism because we believe and practice believer's baptism. So we hold that together, uh, this, this doctrine, but we do not dismiss our Presbyterian brothers and sisters because they hold differently than us on that issue. But we also recognize that there are both those who would hold to infant baptism and to believer's baptism who do not hold to an orthodox view of the gospel. So sort of regardless of the baptism debate, there are those who hold to infant baptism or believer's baptism who don't believe that Jesus is God. So the baptism discussion at that point is moot because they don't hold to the orthodoxy of Christianity. But we do organize ourselves around that. In other words, we are not a Presbyterian church. We are a church that practices believer's baptism. But could we, with an Orthodox Presbyterian church, and there is a denomination called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and I'm talking about all Presbyterians who are Orthodox, could we not host a conference with them? Could we not do an evangelistic outreach together with them? Um. The dearly departed R. C. Sproul, who has influenced so many of us, was a Presbyterian. Disagree with R. C. Sproul on the matter of baptism. But he is my uh, brother in Christ, and he is in the presence of the Lord right now. I've learned so much from him. So we need to understand the importance of this as a local assembly. In the same sense, we must recognize there's a time coming. Here's another reason to study this. There's a time coming where the third and 4th rank doctrines that so many have divided over will not allow us to stand together when persecution comes. We stand together firmly as the church universal on those matters of first, in, first importance. And we stand with our arms linked together because it is truth. And there is coming a time, dear ones, where we must stand together based around that because... We're not going to be looked upon favorably. And I would submit that it's already coming. So here's the main idea this morning. Here's the main idea. And if you're lost, I pray that from here on out, it will make more sense to you. And I pray that you're not lost. But the main idea is this. There are matters of first importance which center around the gospel upon which the church must stand. This is our focus this morning, this first-rank doctrine. There are matters of first importance which center around the gospel upon which the church must stand. I want us to see this morning three elements we must understand about first-order doctrines. So this is not pure exposition this morning, as I've stated, but we are using 1 Corinthians 15 to illustrate what we are talking about when we talk about matters of first importance. So this is not the only place that we go to to talk about matters of first importance, but I think you will see as we go through this passage that this helps illustrate that for us. The first element is this matters of first importance center center around the gospel. We are re- reiterating a point here this morning. Matters of first importance center around the gospel. Notice how Paul talks about the matter of the gospel here. Look at these verses again with me in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what is he speaking of there? He's speaking of what he just said, the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. It was the gospel he preached to them that he proclaimed to them. It was the gospel they received and in which they stood. Notice, though, the condition Paul places on this. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. From the outset, there's a problem that we run into if we don't believe something our very salvation depends upon. This is, of course, Paul's famous passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He's he's addressing the church in Corinth and saying, there's something very important, very foundational that you need to understand about uh, your salvation. It's getting ahead of ourselves a bit. We'll get to that. What does Paul go on to say about this gospel? Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, uh, look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. This is a matter, he says, of first importance. This is a matter of first importance. Let's think about the definition again that Ortland gives us. First rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. Clearly, we're not going to be able to cover all first rank doctrines in one sermon, but I think. I can set us on a trajectory from Paul's words here to help us think through what these essential matters are. So when we hear or read something like this from Paul, we must pause for a moment and consider some things. When Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What do we notice? This is along the same lines of countering someone who says... No creed but Christ. What do, you, what do you mean? What does Paul mean when he says Christ here? There is an assumption here in what Paul is stating. The assumption Paul's, Paul makes is that his listeners know how to define who Christ is. Implicit in the statement is a doctrine of first order. Who is Jesus Christ? When he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, there is an assumption, there's a presupposition that Paul has that his audience knows who he is talking about. And not only this, but once you start down this path of assumptions, you begin to recognize other matters that cannot be denied in order for one to be saved. Matters about the gospel which one must believe. Let's just take one line. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Think through this with me doctrinally. In order for Christ to die, he must be what? Human. He must be a man. Implicit in this statement is the incarnation. In order for him to die for our sins, implicit in that, as we suss this out, as we draw this out in the Scriptures, is that he must be perfect. He must be sinless himself in order to die for our sins. Therefore, as we draw all these things together, he must also be God. God. He is truly God and truly man. The doctrine, if you will, of the hypostatic union is addressed when someone says that Christ died for our sins. In order for him to die for our sins, we also know additionally that we are sinners. If he must die for our sins, it means something about the doctrine of sin, that we are sinners. Uh, This brings us to the doctrine of original sin. Uh, We must believe that uh, mankind, after the fall of Adam, is born in sin. If we are sinners, then we must also understand what it means about our relationship with God. If God is holy and we are not, guess what? We are separated from God. We are under His wrath. In accordance with the Scriptures, that phrase tells us something we must believe about the Scriptures. That they are... Reliable, and that they are God's word about Himself, about uh, Trinitarian theology—that it is Father, Son, and Spirit. And and dear ones, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg here with this, are we not? Do you see how we must see these matters as of first order? Yet Paul here says nothing about baptism or the way in which we must conduct the church meeting, or the timing of the end times. Though he does speak of an important aspect of the end times, which we will see in a moment. For those of us who are in Christ, we must continue to grow and to learn. And we must not ever think that we have it all figured out, or that we have arrived Peter says we must continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us learn today that there are things that God tells us that are of utmost importance and that these are essential to the gospel itself. This is what we speak of when we speak of first rank doctrines. And for those who are here this morning who have all kinds of hang-ups about this or that in the Bible or Christianity, please hear this. The most important thing you can hear this morning is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who put on flesh, who came according to the Scriptures and died for sinners like you and me, who because of our sin deserved the justice of God that Christ did not deserve, yet took upon Himself at the cross. And He rose again three days later in order to show that he is God, to show his defeat of sin and death. And my call to you this morning is to turn from your sin and trust in him today. So we have seen that matters of first importance center around the gospel, firstly. Secondly, we see matters of first importance are those things which are ultimately non-negotiable. They are ultimately non-negotiable. Paul states that these things are the things upon which they stand and which they should hold fast unless they have believed in vain, as it says in verse 2. We must look at this carefully because several things can happen practically in life. So as we're thinking about this this matter of first-rank, first-order doctrines and why it's important for us, because it's centered upon the gospel, we, we have to think about several things that can happen practically in life. Number one, there are those who believe and are truly justified and therefore continue in their belief persevering to the end. In this uh, sanctuary this morning are those who are covenant members of this church who have professed faith in Christ and we believe in meaningful membership here and therefore there are those who we believe to be converted, to be justified here this morning who, as a pattern of life, continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some who are not members, I know, who are in that category as well. Membership doesn't make you a Christian, but in order to be a member here, you must be a Christian. However, it is possible that one who believes does not grasp all the nuances of first-order doctrines as they are taught, though they may wrestle with certain things. Ultimately, they believe it and persevere in it. So you see what I'm saying there? Not every single aspect of first-order or 1st rank doctrine will be believed to its fullest by every believer because we're at different stages of belief. We're at different stages of understanding and, and learning. But as those doctrines are taught to you from the Scriptures, the Spirit of God confirms those things to you, we look at what has historically been believed by the church, and we say, yes, the Trinity is biblical. The Trinity is biblical. Uh, thinking of the fact that there are those who wrestle with these things, think about even who Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls them brothers and sisters. Uh, he uh, is, they're, they're struggling with some aspect of the resurrection. So what is he doing? He's not saying, you heretics, get out of the church. No, he's instructing them about why this is important and why they need to believe it. We must be patient with those who are growing and learning. So there is that category. It is also possible that one may show an initial interest that looks like belief, but as they are challenged about first-order doctrines, they show themselves to be unbelievers. In other words, thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. We can't fully grasp that, but we believe it. But if someone denies that, as you've heard me say previously, they cannot be a Christian. Why? Because that centers around the gospel. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, must be that. He must be the God-man. He must be who He says He is. But we are and should be Growing in our faith and understanding. Uh, keep your finger in First Corinthians 15 and turn over to Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter three. Second Peter, chapter three. I'm looking at starting in verse 14. There are things in the Bible that are hard to understand, right? But what does he say about that? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. He's not saying there aren't hard things to grasp or to kind of catch the nuance in, but we are growing in those things. But those who are ignorant and and, and, um, unstable, they twist these things to their own destruction. Destruction. He says then, Listen, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to eternity. Peter understands that there needs to be growth. Peter understands that even though there is a foundation upon which we stand, that people are growing in their understanding of that. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at uh, the very end of chapter 1. And the very second part of verse 25, and he says, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What's the good news? It is the gospel. It's just another term for the gospel. So, and this is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that. The Lord is good. What does Peter recognize here? That we are those who are on the path to growth, right? Then there's also this in Hebrews five eleven. Don't need to turn there. Just listen to this. Hebrews five eleven through six two. The author of Hebrews is saying about this. We have much to say, and he's speaking about the uh, Melchizedekian priesthood and how that parallels Christ a different sermon for a different time, but he's talking about deep things of theology. About this we have much to say to you, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child." But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And we would all pause. Let me pause for a moment. We would all say that false doctrine, things that deny that Jesus is the Christ, things that are centered around the gospel, are evil, right? Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What is the author of Hebrews saying? We ought to know these foundational truths. We ought to be growing in them so that we can move on and continue to grow in our faith. But these are non-negotiable because they center around the gospel. Paul's challenge is that they not stay in their confusion about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, but believe these things. Not because it is some secondary doctrine, but because it is so vital to salvation. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says there, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus are all the matters we mentioned previously concerning the foundational doctrines of who Christ is and what He came to do and how this has Fulfilled the Scriptures and so on. By the way, here is a matter of eschatology. In times, regardless of your view of the timing of things, this cannot be denied. Jesus will return physically and mankind will be raised in physical bodies. That is a non-negotiable. Paul says that we don't want to commit the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus who denied or who said that the resurrection had already occurred. And he says to their own destruction, right? On matters of first importance, we must then understand that though one may have a simplistic faith, they cannot stay there. As the author of Hebrews has stated, we must move beyond the milk to the solid food of discernment. Having the foundation laid, we must grow in Christ. There should not be a question about these foundational matters, these matters of first importance because they are ultimately non-negotiable. Therefore, if you are in Christ, my call to you this morning is to grow in Him. Understand these matters of first importance. Stand firmly upon them. And just as the strong tree is rooted and grounded, it grows to produce what is necessary for maturity. But it does not grow to that maturity without being rooted. We must be rooted. For those who are in our midst who are not in Christ... The non-negotiable of the gospel truth is that Christ is who Christ is and what he has done. Turn from your sin and trust in him. We've seen how these matters of first importance center around the gospel and how matters of first importance are those things which are ultimately non-negotiable. We see lastly and thirdly, matters of first importance are those things over which the church must ultimately stand and divide from those who ultimately waver. We must stand upon these truths and we must divide if there are those who ultimately say these things are untrue. Notice Paul's serious tone in verses 15 through 19 here. If the If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. These have consequential ramifications. In this instance, this all leads to what Paul says concerning the resurrection. We cannot deny the resurrection without there being eternal consequences. Notice Paul says to do so would be to misrepresent who? God. Paul is saying our preaching has been us saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. Ultimately, we understand from Scripture this is a Trinitarian act. To misrepresent God is to misrepresent who He is and what He has done. To falter on these matters of first importance would be to misrepresent God. And it leads to damnation. Remember what Paul says. And if Christ, verse 17, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have died, it says later on, have no hope of resurrection. They just perish. If our hope is in what Christ provides in this life alone, he says, we are most to be pitied. What Christ has done and who Christ is and all the things that we are considering 1st rank doctrines because they focus on the gospel have an eternal impact. Well, what does this mean for the church universal and for the church local, for the local church? For the universal church, these matters of first importance guide what we call orthodoxy and determine what sort of fellowship and partnership we can have with other churches, groups mission organizations, or denominations. If any of these depart from these matters of first importance, we must not only stand firmly upon these matters, but also have no partnership with those who do not hold to these truths. We may choose not to associate because of other reasons, but these are non-negotiable in regard to the universal church. For the local church, these matters are, uh, that, uh, that are non-negotiable are for membership because they are matters upon which the very salvation of one's soul stands. Now we will see that there are certain second-order doctrines around which we make our fellowship concerning membership, like baptism. And there are reasons for that at which we will look next week. But for now, we must understand the importance of these foundational matters why are we talking about this? Once again, let me remind you why we're talking about this. Because coming out of the era of the early 20th century modernism, which was the threat to the church, liberalism and modernism, there was a tendency to make every doctrine a first matter doctrine because the liberalism of the day was saying that doctrine was unimportant. It was an overreaction that has stuck in some of our churches and our church's confessions and doctrinal statements. Some second, third, and fourth order doctrines became tests of orthodoxy, and that stuck. We are first and foremost to stand upon that which is centered around the gospel, and as we will see next week, form our churches around these as well as secondary doctrines to some degree, and yet how we are then to allow freedom for third and 4th rank doctrines. We are not to take every doctrine... And say it's of the same importance and and that's how we know whether or not you're orthodox. Because that's not what God's word does. That's not what has been done historically in the church either. Though, to be fair, some infant Baptists did drown those of us who were believer Baptists. (laughs) We can laugh about it now because they're not doing it now, thankfully. But, though we find even some of these second order doctrines to be important for forming our church around them. We cannot make even those tests of orthodoxy whether or not someone is truly a Christian or not. But we can with first ranking doctrines as Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. For those of us in Christ, we are not to compromise on these areas of first importance. And yet, we are also not to make second, third, or fourth order doctrines Tests of orthodoxy. Tests of whether or not someone is truly a Christian or not. And yet, again, we must stand firm upon matters which center around the gospel. For those who are not in Christ, hear this yet again. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He did come and put on flesh. He did live a perfect life. He did die a death that you deserved, taking the wrath and justice of God upon himself. But he victoriously rose three days later and he ascended to the Father at whose right hand he now sits, awaiting for his enemies to be made his footstool, at which time, if you have not bended your knee to him, you will but it will be too late. My call to you is to turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. Would you pray with me? Lord, I can imagine that this feels a bit like drinking from a fire hose this morning. And so I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would do the work that is necessary to Sink these truths deep into our hearts, Lord, that you have given matters of first importance that we must stand upon if we are to say we are gospel believers. And yet, even as we move forward to consider those second, third, and fourth order doctrines, that we would not judge people in their belief by those matters, but that we would understand how those work themselves out. But yes, Lord, we must stand firmly upon the truth of the gospel this morning. So I pray for those who do not know you, that today would be the day that they would turn uh, to you, uh, turning from their sin and trusting in Christ alone. And yet, Lord, that those of us who are in you would be encouraged to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.